Hello and welcome to Garaganar of this town, a 2000s pop punk and emo pop retrospective. I am as always Elaine, and with me there are two other podcast people. I'm Blink8, Fletcher. And I'm Blink2, Adam. Does that make, make me Blink1? Oh well, yeah, you started. Okay. This is also why I'm so much higher than the rest of you, because I'm ancient. Uh, I didn't get the joke, but okay, let's move on. Eight to- being larger than one and two. Oh, right, a maths joke. Yes. The very complicated maths of numbers being higher than other numbers. That's fair. <laughs> it could have been a marijuana joke. We don't know. I could be higher than the both of you. I'm not sure. Wouldn't you like to know, weather boy? <laughs> what? It's a meme. Oh, I don't, I don't do memes. I pretend I know what they mean because as an old person, I have to interact with the youth at my job. So they were talking about Blink-182. Six months-ish after we started our podcast by talking about Blink-182, we talk about Blink-182 again. Just barely not our first return customer. Incidentally, uh, we're going to skip next week because, as I mentioned, we are we, we try to get a backlog of things done. So next week there won't be an episode. The week after, episodes will reprise normally. Probably there will be another break after that episode, and then we can we continue doing weekly, just because we're trying to... Uh, it was the holidays, and we had a bunch of skips, and now we try to get back into form. We will be bi-weekly in, in a certain month here, and then back to normal afterwards. Yeah, bi-weekly for like a month, and then for like less than a month, and then back to normal. It's been a crazy time. <laughs> this week has been a crazy week in american politics so it's um yeah we'll have to remove it when heads are on pikes next week (laughs) yeah suddenly the fascists have done like the little mistake of actually like annoying the ruling class in their working place turns out the ruling class is more friendly with other people in the ruling class than with fascists so yeah my favorite quote about that is that uh the president was very upset that everyone looked so lower class showing up in beer shirts to try and take the Capitol hostage. Yeah, it looked like a fucking Limbiscuit concert with Wild. It's just like, oh, the, the 2000s are back. I hate that you're right about that. We made that happen. It is our fault directly that the 2000s are back. You will never get us to answer for our crimes. Just like many political figures of uh, the American 2000 never got to answer for their crimes. I'm sure someone will take out a bush any day now. It'll just be Jeb. When he dies, the eulogy is like, please cry. (laughs) Anyhow, we should talk about pop punk, which is what this podcast is about. Yeah, we're a little too punk right now, not enough pop. I'm sorry, guys, but you're just really harshing the vibe here. Well, first of all, today we're talking about Blink-182. We're talking about take off your pants and jacket. Do you remember Blink-182 last time we saw them? Yeah, I was a little irritated with them, and they ended off on a track that uh, 
soured me quite a lot on the end of that record. I think it was called Anthem. Uh, much like Bioware, they could not deliver a satisfying conclusion to Anthem. I mean, they couldn't deliver a satisfying start to Anthem in Bioware Cave. Not in Blink's case either. This is also true, but much like Bioware, they're promising an Anthem Part 2. Safe to say that I feel like our opinion on Blink since that episode are sort of like mellowed because we we experienced the Blink clones and um, Blink is mostly better than the Blink clones turns out. As always, you can go and listen to our first episode about Blink-182, the one about Enema of the State, if you want a history of how Blink came to be. But right now we will cover what happened between Enema of the State and Take Off Your Pants and Jacket in our small history segment. With a blink, they got shot into super pop stardom by the incredible success of the record Enema with the State. After the record drops, they start touring immediately, but not just the usual circuit, they were touring arenas, which was the first time they ever did, and showing up on TRL, yeah, late night shows, the, the whole like TV circuit. They overnight became huge pop sensation, which was very new to them. More importantly, again, much of their career was driven just like Sum 41 by TRL, which was sort of this new thing for the youth to look at and see people interviewed that made the music. I don't know where the sentence was going, but uh, Fletch, tell us about TRL. Yeah, so we've been mentioning it in the past so many weeks, and this seems like a good time to cover what was basically the driving force behind a lot of these major bands at this period of time. We were just on the verge of Napster and digital being a thing, but you still had to go to the record labels who controlled most of the power in US and, by extension, some global music. And the big thing that pushed it was an MTV program known as Total Request Live. Not a lot of people remember, it's actually the hybrid of two sort of failures that MTV had. A show called Total Request and a show called MTV Live. One of them was we stuck Carson Daly, the host, in a room with nobody and just went, you guys called in and voted on what you wanted to see, and here's the top 10 videos of the day. And that was Total Request. And MTV Live was just a weird fans in the studio. Yeah, there's an energy people. And there would be some uh, interview segments, but it didn't quite have a format. And then the two merged together in 1998. So this is when it becomes... 
were working out of the Times Square studio, and there's a big crowd in the room, and you can see people on the streets, and we have one VJ, ten videos, and you, the fans, call in to determine what is the top music in the U.S. today. So, all right, that's good. It's great. People get competitive with it. Everyone's uh, dialing in, and it's touch-tone, so they're going to have to pay charges for each vote. But it was a very Wild West thing. It skyrocketed a lot of artists up. And you could also use it as cross-promotional marketing when people wander in, and it's like, oh, well, today we've decided that we're going to have an interview with Eminem, and he's going to say three slurs and call someone a slut. (laughs) And look, that happened multiple times. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, that's the kind of thing they they made this show live with a very minimal tape delay. So part of the effort was maybe you tune in to see if somebody does something stupid. Three slurs and a slut sounds like a cocktail. That's definitely a James Bond request. I'll have three slurs and a slut. <laughs> God. So it's it's pretty major. It had a boom to the point that there was this show ran five days a week because you know obviously you get off class and you come home and you dial in and you're gonna fight for your band on total request live they made a weekend edition of the show which only lasted in 2000 it died off pretty quickly because it turns out people want to do other things on the weekend than stay inside and watch mtv luther's and they actually did a spinoff on country music television CMT Most Wanted Live starting in 2001. So that's how much this was spreading around at the time. I didn't grow up with the American TRL because we had our regional one. So I don't know who Carson Daly is and I googled him just now and he pretty much looks like the default character in like any like shooter game. All right, let me look him up. Uh yeah, you're you're going to know that Elaine is instantly correct when you see a picture of him. You're just like, wow, this is someone told the animator to make a generic white male character model. Yeah, no, I'm looking and I'm like, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, give that dude a gun and uh, uh, maybe a little bit of dirt on his face. And yeah, that's a first person shooter, dude. I'm Commander Daly and this is your favorite video as voted on by the Citadel today. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Video games jokes. And a lot of people forget, because this thing was running five days a week, you saw a lot of him. He was around for a thousand or so episodes of it, but Carson Daly bounced by 2003. He was doing more and more work on his own late night show, Last Call with Carson Daly for NBC, and more guest VJs were taking over on days he wasn't in studio. So they started rotating people because no one else had that. I guess I guess Carson Daly does have a charisma. He's a very good interviewer. I've seen him do work these days, but you don't look at that guy and think this is the glue that holds your program together. You think, oh, the guy from Weezer got kicked out of the band. So the 2000s were the wane of it. And so... You know, 2003, we start having a revolving door cast do the running of the show. 
And some of these people had already been VJs on there, but this is also the last era in which MTV really had VJs. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the term, so a DJ for radio would be a disc jockey, the person who was putting the things on to play, and a VJ was the television equivalent, a video jockey. Teehee. We had less and less of them, and there are still multiple MTV music channels and shows that air regularly, but none of them need a host anymore. They just go, you're here for the music, why should we pay a generic dude to tell you what you can see in the little corner blurb? In 2005, they changed the voting process around. This this kind of kills the weird bandwagony nature of the show, because one of the things that gets changed is you can't vote multiple times online anymore. They start limiting people to one vote a day. I'm sure people got around that, but they made it much harder to instantly just, like, spam the thing, send in five texts, or do whatever for your band. Get a VPN for Karn. Karn needs you to get a VPN. Well, that's what you had to do starting in 2006 because they stopped taking votes by phone. This also killed off the dial MTV phone number, which had been used since programming in the 80s. So that's the death of a lot of MTV history. In 2006, it reaches eight years running, and that makes it the longest running live program MTV had ever produced. And it is the third longest running program of all time in the network's history behind the real world and 120 minutes at 21 and 17 years based on when this count was taken uh, in my research notes. So also in this time, they cut it down to four days a week and then they start siphoning off hosts. Some of them go to other projects. Uh, a few go to different shows on MTV a couple of them try to become musicians themselves. Uh, Lala Vasquez went to make a rap album. Hillary Burton joined the cast of One Tree Hill and started acting. A few of them became Californian hosts doing local programming or talk shows. And then in 2007, it winds down. They really start getting desperate because the rumors are going around. All right. We're, we're killing off TRL. And they're like, no, no, that's totally not happening. But they also launch and fail to launch this second show called URL, as in the word URL. And we all know that's a pun when you speak it out loud. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, maybe we're going to start letting people send things in via the new tech of internet forms and webcams. And also the, I bet you didn't know this existed, overdrive video portal that MTV had for fans to upload things. You know, a proto-YouTube. Huh. Interesting. It failed incredibly hard, which is probably part of what killed off URL's plans as well. So, everyone goes, no, no, Total Request Live is totally good, that other show's not going anywhere. And then within a year, they announce, okay, TRL's dead, though. So... They finish off with a three-hour special. A bunch of artists make appearances, including some that we're going to cover here, like Fallout Boy, uh, Kid Rock, Travis Barker, Eminem, and Jonathan Davis of Korn himself. Yay! You might notice we did not hear any Limp Biscuit members in there, and there's a reason. <laughs> what did they do? 
oh no, just they were too cool for TRL even to come back and talk about a thing that gave them a giant boost. Fun fact, Italian TRL will last until 2010 before it shuts down. So three more years than the American version. For what it's worth, the final countdown on that last episode of TRL was not voted on by fans, but they instead chose the 10 most iconic videos the show had put through. None of them came from after the year 2004, which I think says a lot. And one, absolutely one, will be relevant to our show, with number nine being Blink-182's What's My Age Again. We already covered that. It's the Naked People one. Yeah. For what it's worth, there have been two different attempts to revive TRL since. In 2014, they brought it back, and it was just a one-off. In 2017, they brought back the show. Then it was instantly cut within six months from a full hour to only a half hour. Then went on a hiatus. Then they tried to make it a late-night show. And then they tried to shift it from that to become a morning show, turning it from Total Request Late Night to Total Request AM. Vinny from Jersey Shore was brought on as host for a week to try and push it, which says a lot about where things were at in 2018 for MTV. <laughs> and it is now currently, or at least it was as of the last time I found any mention of it, TRL Top 10, which was airing on Saturday mornings. The weird thing with TRL being revived in the present is that pop music doesn't exist anymore. Like, the artists that do the 2000 style, just like pure pop, are basically not there anymore. Like, you've got some things, but like, everything in like the pop zeitgeist right now, it's either like super dark trap stuff or some other kind of, you know, genre slash niche of its own. You don't have that broad appeal pop music really anymore. And the one that you have are just, like, artists from the early 2010 trying to hold on for their life to relevancy. I could see TRL just not working anymore because you don't have the music that TRL was about. Like, yeah, who's, like, a big name nowadays? Like, Harry Styles. Harry Styles basically made an art pop record this year. You cannot really market that through TRL. Drake. Drake makes weirdly, like, dark and, like, mellow, like, not trap music, like, it's more, like, still in the R&B area, but, again, not something that really works with a TRL format, so that's the thing. The music that TRL is about doesn't really exist anymore in the mainstream. You cannot really revive it. I was trying to find lists of what was actually shown on some of the last ones, just because, like, what what were the ten videos? And I cannot find anything that is not discussing the 2000s era of TRL when I look for these lists. I think I may have actually seen some of that inadvertently. Could not tell you what was on it, though. Was tuning it out pretty hard. <laughs> so the last highlight is from the 13th November 2018. Yeah. Tory Lane's got Ashanti on his new album cover. I don't know what any of this means, but okay. Ashanti isn't dead? I don't know. 
DDG talks new album Valedictorian. Bell Pauli has a newfound respect for production assistants. Oh, someone is holding a photo of Jared Leto Joker. Well, let's just stop there. Nothing good will come of digging into that hole. Oh, Young Blood sends fans a message of acceptance. Thanks, Young Blood. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. TRL. I'm not. I, I don't think it's. I, I, I think it's dead. Yeah, I feel like it had to have been killed by the pandemic, if nothing else. For what it's worth, MTV has started going through another restructuring over the past year and seems to be trying to, along with a lot of Viacom, move into animated content again because it's much easier to make during COVID conditions. Makes sense. They announced revivals of Clone High, Beavis and Butthead. I don't know if Celebrity Deathmatch was confirmed or rumored. And a few other shows that are basically wiping out a lot of their live action slate. Anyhow, that's the sort of thing that was giving push to Blink-182 and making them teen idols, literally. Yeah, they even cameo in the first American Pie movie or in the second one. Can't remember now. I wrote down in the first one, but it might have been the second one. But yeah, this is what we're working with, right? It's, uh, that's the kind of stardom that they have. There is not much history or fact about this period of history for Blink, mostly because most of the history that I talk about I take from interview from the band at the time and during this period of time if you go and read blink interviews they're all like uh, uh, gay joke most of the things that they say are not straight answers in interviews and they're mostly just like jokes or making fun of stuff or like making completely inventing things like they will ask them how did you meet each other and they talk about having sex with each other because gay sex is hilarious so funny. This kind of like, oh, we're just jackasses joking around, sort of is sort of what gave them that mass appeal that teen audiences loved at the time. But as a pop punk historian, it makes it very difficult to unearth anything interesting about, you know, their life on the road and stuff during this period of time. Because most things that they say are most likely entirely made up. Like they talk about destroying hotel rooms if they don't find pornography in there and like i'm not sure that actually happened to be honest yeah it's not real easy to research because this was an era of a lot of media control around bands like this and from what i gather much like the boy bands blink were either too naive or too happy to play along with what the record labels wanted at this period but yeah, they were huge, like not huge in a rock band way. They were proper huge, like their face was in magazine posters, any kind of gadget that could be sold to teens had like a big Mark Hoppus face on it. 
And yeah, I'm pretty sure if I dig through my like Mickey Mouse comic collection, I can find some 2000, 2001 Blink-182 interviews. That's the level that they were at this point. 99% if I go in the closet where I have about five years of childhood comics, uh, there's gotta be something about Blink-182 in there. So... Blink is getting pressured to release a new album during this period, and it will take them about two years after Enema to get back into the studio. And in January 2001, the recording of Take Off Your Pants and Jacket begins. There is another Wikipedia fucked this up claim, according to Elaine. Yes, yes. So, Wikipedia cannot, does not have reading comprehension. So, Wikipedia cites some issues with the record label not Basically, the record not being released in time with MCA quarterlies, uh, business shit, whatever. But I went to the source that Wikipedia cites, and they're wrong. Because this, this was about their next record. And in fact, the conclusion of that story, and we will talk about it when we talk about the next record, is that they initially get all of this pressure to like release the record in time for the quarterlies, but then turns out that MCA get closed down and they are moved to Geffen, that gives them more freedom to do whatever the fuck they like. And that's the whole story. But whoever was writing the Wikipedia could not like read things linearly and connect events and check that, you know, the Geffen move happened in the next record. You can go and check the next record was released under Geffen. This was still under MCA. Uh, yeah, so they're wrong. Ignore all of this, listener. This is, this is all stuff that Wikipedia got wrong, and it's actually about the next record. There was still some pressure to release this record at this point in time, because, of course, they need to. They had a very successful record, and they needed to do another successful record. But as far as I know, there wasn't much conflict with MCA at this point yet. Speaking of conflicts, there were none. Jerry Finn returned on production, and the studio stayed out of their hair as they began prepping for Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. The band decide that they want to go for a more aggressive sound than the last record, and specifically cite Alkaline Trio as, quote, a point of interest and a signal to step up their game. Just imagine if you ever said that about Alkaline Trio and what your friends and family would think about you. Oh, come on, Alkaline Trio are good. I like them. Alkaline Trio are good. But imagine if you said, looking at Alkaline Trio in the 2000s, oh my god, we've got to get on this level. Uh, Yo, bro, did you hear this? Alkaline Trio's making better burgers than Wahlburgers. <laughs> That's what, that's what I hear that in. Yeah. Anyhow, much like Pokemon games, the album gets three different releases. The Red Plane version, the Yellow Pound version, and the Green Jacket version. Each version contains different bonus tracks, 
and the print on the actual physical CD inside the case is different. As you may imagine, the red plane version has a red plane on the CD. Gasp. The yellow pants version has a yellow pants on the CD. Can you guess what the green jacket version has on the CD? Bulbasaur? Blue socks? No, green, a, a green jacket. You try though. Oh. I'm sorry. Okay, so I didn't know about this part because these tracks don't appear to be listed under the album, thank God. And boy, these hidden tracks are something. I, I haven't even looked at them, but I assume they are like all of the garbage that fortunately wasn't on the actual album proper. And they shoved it here. Okay, I have to read off these track names to you because this is wild. I'm ready to suffer. I'm not. Red version hidden tracks. Time to break up and Mother's Day. Okay. Okay. That that tracks. This album is very emo in places. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yellow version hidden tracks. What went wrong and fuck a dog. Oh. Uh. Green version hidden tracks. Don't tell me it's over and when you fucked grandpa. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking down, it's like, oh, the red sounds like, oh, these are some B-sides, and then it just kept going. I suppose when you have to make six tracks that aren't good enough for the album, you get a little sloppy with it. Eventually, the three releases were replaced by a regular version that doesn't feature any bonus track, which is the one that you are probably able to buy today in, like, record stores when the pandemic ends. And record stores open up again. The band is starting to feel the pressures of fame because um, multi-millionaires on a level that I don't think any of them expected in their wildest dreams. So everyone is, you know, trying to do their own thing. Tom DeLonge wants to talk about aliens a lot. The other guys are thinking maybe we need more Donut Dans. And Jerry Finn has to act as the mediator for the band. So... He, he gets to filter things out, lighten up the room when everyone gets heated. Cancel the donut dance. <laughs> <laughs> the Blink Whisperer as a good uh, title for the man. I would want that on a card. Isn't Donut Dan Goldfinger, though? We keep mentioning Donut Dan. I don't think that's Blink. <laughs> it is, but I mean, look at their bonus tracks and tell me that that's not on the level of Donut Dan. No, that's fair. Blink with Diarrhea Jones or whatever. Dysentery Gary. Right. Okay, I knew it was a D. Dysentery Gary. <laughs> yeah. Why are they all Ds? They're all D names. God. It's a it's a dick joke. Oh right. It's the D. I don't I don't think Blink worth smart enough to actually think about it. Probably just a subconscious dick thing. Subconscious dicks is very much the theme of this album. Subconscious dick thing is my next album title. Subconscious dick thing is a great name for like a brutal metal slash shoegaze crossover. Yeah, I think that was the band in the ho- uh the lure. Anyway, the first single for the record would be The Rock Show, followed by First Date, and in 2002, because the world had gotten sad, Stay Together for the Kids. <laughs> I'm just saying there's a real change in pace. I mean, also the third single is usually the third one, historically. (laughs) Yeah. I guess. But yeah, most of the singles follow the same trajectory, getting decent success in terms of airplay and sales, 
they bubble around 70 on the Billboard Hot Single charts and Airplay charts, getting big plays on like MTV and stuff like that. The videos are as always fairly big. And yeah, this continues their source of momentum. They're never huge in terms of singles in the Hot 100, but they have big airplay, big just like videos on MTV. Everything goes pretty well. The, the videos have a good success. The album is also an absolute commercial success. It debats a number one on the Billboard 200 record chart and stays there for a long time. We've seen a bunch of bands following Blink's footsteps and being pushed to be like, this label's Blink, and so on. But no one like Blink had really nailed that formula of accessible pop and like relatable shithead teen persona that sort of captured the imagination of what they were at the time, young millennials in the 2000s. The punk scene, on the other hand, would be split about Blink's success. The people who were smart and figured out, hey, we can use this wave and we can like actually get record sales from people being into a punk-adjacent band, like Alkaline Trio, they were vocally supportive of the trio. While there was a more purist part of the scene decrying them as, you know, fake sellouts and all the shit that you say when someone becomes a pop act. They're pop. They can't be pop and punk at the same time. That's just not done. <laughs> yep. Ha. But yeah, the punk scene was split. The audience wasn't split. The, audi- the pop audience loved themselves some blink. Take off your pants and jacket ends going up double platinum in 2002, which is not good as cinema, which in a year went triple platinum and eventually reached quintuple platinum, which is just showing off at this point. Yeah. But, you know, still a fucking double platinum record. Any band would be happy about getting this kind of sales. Yeah, no one at the record label went, oh, pfft. You have disappointed us, Blink-182, after this album. Yeah, and this is all that there is to say about the history of this record. There isn't any additional forbidden lore that I found about it. So we can start talking about the record itself. Let's get into some masturbation jokes. We really need... What? It is a masturbation joke, right? So, uh, I will give them this from what I was digging up later. They were also commenting on the fact that so much of the marketing after the videos for the first album just kept going, okay, you guys need to get naked again. (laughs) Okay. The whole thing was just playing off of that, you know, we heard so many times, okay, take off your pants and jacket. That is fair. That is fair. That makes sense. I didn't talk about it like that, but, you know, pretty sure it's also a masturbation joke. Oh, I'm sure it's a masturbation joke. It couldn't be anything else, but I came away from this Spoilers, actually really impressed with these guys. This is a this is a real upgrade. 
I don't love it, but this is fine. We start with Anthem Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. A weirdly hard political track for the start of an album from Blink-182. I... I would not call it hard. This is... This is barely political. Alright, think of how much we've been covering on this show. Name me two other people, and I'll give you Green Day as a freebie, who have been this edgy in the past year of coverage. Everything that the Suicide Machine made? Alright, reasonable. Can you come up with a third? Thursday? Had uh, had the Paris is burning? Fuck, Thursday, Thursday did actually really... Okay, <laughs> never mind. I stand corrected. But it's a lot, a lot less than you would see going through the bush years, is all I'm saying. I mean, this is like a general... Like, this feels like... I, mean, I like this song. The only real problem with this song is the launch voice, which is real bad i i i cannot express how the nasal quality of the launch voice and i'm not against nasally singing voice i think they can be used well but the launch voice has a this weird mix of being nasally and really weak that makes now i know why you want to hate me because hate is all the world has even seen lately no but i'm tom delange that's your voice is better. Your voice sounds more like fucking Link Biscuit, and I don't like Link Biscuit, but there is an energy to that voice. Well, I was also quoting Limp Biscuit lyrics. Yeah, <laughs> that was the joke. I know, but like <laughs> there is a there is an energy to Limp Biscuit. Like Tom DeLonge's voice is just like a wilting frog. But aside from that, this song is fine. But the political message is the is pretty much just like, oh, you're ruining the world for the kids of today and it's just like it's so generic i am i don't know i like specifics in my political music if you're going to go political politics is not abstraction politics is not an abstract matter it's not philosophy and there are very real things that are happening in your country at the moment that you could be referencing and you're not you're just going generally oh adults are ruining the world for the kids so this is also directly after the Supreme Court threw an election that had some of the higher voter turnout in a bit. You know, Bush Gore was a definite thing. Yeah, I can see I can see frustration, but yes, these are not brilliant minds who are going to rise a generation up. These are the guys who are making a masturbation joke that's also a little higher hanging fruit than you expect. The, the problem with this kind of political music, when you're just very generic, is that this is the kind of political music that doesn't challenge anyone. If you're, like, it doesn't express an idea. This is the kind of political music that anyone on any kind of political spectrum can look at it and be like, oh, this agrees with me. And that's not... Not the point of political music to be as generic and universal as possible. That's the opposite point that political music should have. I mean, I th I would like to make a distinction that anyone that is uh, a teenager on any political spectrum can look at this and agree, but the adults might not. Eh, like, this is... No one protested this song, right? So this is generic enough that no one was bothered by it. And that's... I don't know. I don't think this is a bad song. I think that musically this is completely fine. It's like a slower song. Oh, I hate this song musically. <laughs> oh, okay. The melody grates. 
mm, that makes sense. I, I I'm fine with it. But yeah, I don't. I'm not there for these lyrics. I think. I don't know. I think when you try to get political and end up this sort of limp on your message, it's worse than just like worse than limp biscuit. Yeah, and I mean it's worse than just not trying at all. Like if if you don't want to get political, don't. That is not a thing that you have to do in music. I'll be honest. Music can you know there is a thing in, uh, in criticism that just like oh artists are always political and it's just like yeah but also like no <laughs> like yes to an extent but to another extent you can just like make fun songs about relationships and that's fine but when you try to get political and fail that's worse than not trying at all i think ah but according to zizek and the pervert's guide to ideology then what <laughs> Let's talk about online songs. Josie, you're my source of most frustration. Forget when I don't meet expectations. Everything you wish came true. In the end, we all blamed you. Even though it's day, I'll know you weren't the only one, two, three, four. Oh, like Bandcamp and shit? Napster. God, I wish. I like Markopus' voice. It's a shame that he sings the worst tracks on this record, but this song is fine. It's a very of-its-era thing, talking about seeing someone's screen name online as they log on. It's like, wow. So, was this IRC era or MSN era? AIM. Okay. I believe AIM was referenced in discussions about this at one point. Makes sense. For those who don't know, AOL Instant Messenger used to A, exist, and B, be one of the dominant chat programs in the world, especially among the youth, because it was free, and if you happen to have AOL, you already had an account. Hmm. Yeah. I like this song. Like I said from the lyric, this is just like a good energy. It's low enough, but that, you know, it has that like slow ska energy. Almost, it's not a ska song, but again, every time I hear a punk song that keeps the tempo a bit low, making danceable, making it sort of danceable, I always think of ska, because that's sort of the point of that genre. Uh, but no, this is fun. This is like about online chatting, it's very 2000. You can start seeing that the production on this record is a bit more raw than... It's still pop production, right? It's still Jerry Finn, but it's uh, there's less of a pop sheen on the production of this album. You get way less electronic stuff going on, um, which is interesting. It's not necessarily the direction that I would have expected them to go in a vacuum because they had their success with an almost boy bandish production on Enema. But they're sort of returning to like just a very crisp punk sound on this record, which um, I like. The song is fun. I enjoyed... This track, because of that energy, because of the speed, it's it's very middle of the road on the album, but I, I'd put it on the upper half. Yeah. yeah, just like fine pop punk. And this is where I started going, oh, this this is a little more mature than the last one. This is a breakup song that's not just you bitch. It's just like, hey, I feel pain. Yeah. I mean, it, we also established that the Mark Coppola songs tend to be a bit less gross than the, the launch songs. Interestingly enough, the program for this tour had Mark writing, 
This song is about the thoughts that drive you crazy when a relationship ends. Tom knows that feeling well. Girls hate him, and with good reason. (laughs) So I guess this song is really about Tom and how he hates it when girls break his heart. (laughs) It's one of the most brutal slams a bandmate has ever written about a co-worker. Yeah, no, that... Mm. Ah, It's a good song. Fun. It's fast. I dig it. But not too fast. Sketchy, but not too catchy. And uh, Tom DeLonge doesn't sing this one, which is always a plus. Yeah, no, I liked this song. Mark Hoppus' singing is much more palatable. Mm-hmm. He sounds like a human being. <laughs> Speaking of human beings, how about we talk about first date? Let's go, don't wait. This night's almost over. Honest, let's make. It's a single. I don't remember the video for this one. This is the shitty Beastie Boys style video where they're all in age makeup and old 70s clothes doing dumb stunts. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. it's that video. No. Yeah, this is this is the worst video on this album. Yeah, it's the one that they're like, they're parodying, I think, the American South or something. And they're also making gay jokes. And the... there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah, yeah it's the... It's weird, because, like, they have this funny, haha, we're jerks, we're jogging around persona, and you can see the, you can see that con- conflict in this video where, like, there is all this attempt at comedy going on, but the song is not a funny song. The song is written uh, as a little bit of a gag, because it's supposed to be, like, so. so this is weird. The song is allegedly written about... DeLong and his then-wife's first date at SeaWorld in San Diego, and he just punched up the awkwardness to make it feel more teenaged. But this was a guy who could already drink at the time that this is happening, and this is how he described going out with a girl. It's uh, sort of an interesting perspective on things, is all I'm going to say. I I did dating in my 20s, and it was... Nowhere near this fumbly and pimply. Interestingly enough, this video is basically just the movie Hot Rod, but with more homophobia. Like, if you cut some gay jokes, it could just be a miniature version of that film. Yeah. Also, they take off their shirts at some point, and this made me realize that, you know, they're not bad-looking, but they should not take off their shirt. They're all, like, super scrawny and, like, not... Not pleasant to look out at all, shirtless. Aside from Travis Barker, which has... Um, it's still super scrawny, but at least with all of the tattoos and shit, has, like, a look he's going for, which is fine. But the other two are just, like, scrawny white boys. So keep your shirts on. Keep your pants and jackets on, Blink. And then, just to go back to the old hits, at the very end, it turns into another parody-style video for some reason, with them running through a field in white jackets and things. Oh, what are they parodying there? I think it's just going back to the boy band stuff off the last one. It's very similar to the outfits they had on in the uh, Backstreet Boys one in the hangar. 
It's just they're all in older age makeup. So video aside, this is the problem that I have with this record is that all of the best songs are sung by Tom DeLonge, which makes them worse. Uh, this song is great. I like it. I think Travis Barker does some really great drumming on this one. There's like a lot of just like little fun bits. There's a lot of dry energy on the drums. The bass sound is fantastic on this song. It really lays like a good bass for this song, almost like the bass sound here almost replaces that kind of boy bandish production that they used in the last record to sort of like fill gaps. This song just has like this very pervasive bass sound, which is great. Uh, it's not like an amazing song overall, but it's just like a really tightly produced song with some really good stuff going on for it. And then Tom DeLonge sings it and it's just like, oh, why? Could it have, couldn't you have Mark who sing this one? I like him. Want to hate Tom DeLonge a little more? Yes. Sure. Here's, I, I poked at the program for this tour because it has a lot of good notes on these songs. Here's some quotes about writing this from DeLonge. Uh, I always envy girls. If they want to kiss, it's super easy. They just open their face and do it. For a guy, you have to hope to God she wants one. If not, you're a chump and you go home a wounded soldier. Don't ever kiss someone who eats dog shit. What? What? Huh? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. True poetry. True poetry. Yep. You like this song, Adam? Um, this is some one of those things where this is uh, one of the few songs in this podcast that I've heard before. Uh so I'm like, you know, okay, time to peel back the nostalgia layer on there, and it's all right. Again, Tom DeLonge's voice in there is a lot like uh, you have this like nice, very delicious, tasty soup, and then as you go to sprinkle a little bit of salt into it, the salt shaker's top falls off, and like just all of the salt falls into the soup at once, and now the soup is not tasty anymore. That is. I would say that is an incredible like metaphor, mostly because that literally happened to me. Not with soup, but with fries that I made like two days ago. Yep. It could have been good, but I never got to take it. Like, yeah. Yeah, it, that was just salt, which, you know, salt is fine, but uh, I, I wasn't expecting to eat salt. I wanted to eat fries. My soup. Look, I just want to talk about this song a bunch because I don't like what comes next. <laughs> because you know the next one? I know what the next one is, and my only note on the next song is no. It's Christmas Eve and I've only wrapped two fucking presents. Christmas Eve and I've only wrapped two fucking presents. And I hate, hate, hate your guts. I hate, hate, hate your guts. And I'll never talk to you again. Unless you're jealous of me. I'll never talk to you again. Unless you're mom. Alright, so Happy Holidays, You Bastard comes next. 
hilariously on the Walmart edition, which I think is pretty much the only place you could reliably find a censored version at this time. Uh, the song is just called Happy Holidays and only a single line is played on the track. It's just an instrumental otherwise. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would have liked it better that way. I have an anecdote about this song. Sure. sure. So earlier uh, last year, I guess now, um, you know, right around Christmas, I was in charge of watching the child, um, and she was like, you know, about ready to take a nap, kind of sleepy, uh, and I'm like, oh, put on some Christmas music, and I was like, oh, they've got like a pop punk, uh, uh, Christmas music thing, I'm on a pop punk podcast, I should, uh, give that a listen, and this song starts playing at full blast. <laughs> so, um... We should probably comment on the fact that this is a song that Hoppus wrote because apparently he was behind on wrapping presents on Christmas Eve in real life. And rather than just wrap them, he wrote this song in a brief burst of rage. And then he finished wrapping presents around three in the morning and just went to bed. That's kind of a mood. Yeah, this song is not a mood. This song is just, like, bad, gay, and, like, penis jokes with a Christmas theming. For what it's worth, I don't know that it's gay jokes so much as just trying to be as vulgar as possible. That's fair. I mean, I don't find it offensive. I find it dumb, which is a different, you know, level of uh, of existence. This song is just really dumb and not pleasant to listen to. It's incredibly dumb, but there are two lines that do make me laugh every time I look at them, which is in the middle of a song about the holidays, there's just, it's Labor Day and my grandpa just ate seven fucking hot dogs twice in a row. <laughs> it's so weird and it continues to catch me up every time. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I think this song is dumb, but I think that the story behind this song is relatable. It's very dumb. It's very brief. And I still laugh at the Labor Day. It's still bottom of the album tier. It's not the worst. Uh, it's, it's sort of the worst. It's no Donut Dan or Dysentery Gary. <laughs> I mean, that is not a high bar to clear. Or whatever the Phoenix TX song was, uh, Cowboy Toothpaste. Yeah, whatever it is. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> not much more we can add to this one. Let's go into a song that the band said was... Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're, we're on Phoenix TX. Phoenix TX wrote a better political song than Blink-182. The song where they killed the alien president is better than Anthem 2. Wow. Yeah, I forgot that happened, and we only just covered this recently. <laughs> to be fair, that was on their first record. I don't remember that. I do remember it when she mentions it. It, it was a song with ver two solid verse about, you know, working class in America being exploited, and then it turns out the president is an alien. Yeah, I think that's worse, actually. No, I like that better than Anthem Part 2. <laughs> no. Now, because that feeds into uh, conspiracy theorists, and we don't want to feed them. <laughs> Did Phoenix TX engineer the downfall of Blink-182? Signs may tell. 
let's talk about The Cure, because that's who the band said they were inspired by in writing Story of a Lonely Guy. Yeah, there's also a song later where they say they were inspired by Shellac, and I don't know, I don't think they know what the word inspired by means. I mean, I don't think Tom knows what a lot of words mean. Sorry, not Shellac, Fugazi. I just have Shellac in my mind because I have been listening to a bunch of Shellac today. Still. I would love to hear Tom describe Fugazi if he thinks any track on this album sounds like Fugazi. The last track, they say they they were very inspired by Fugazi in writing the last track on this record, and that just confuses me. (laughs) Okay, sure. Yeah, I don't see that at all. I hate their slow songs. Fuck them, Delonge. This album is half emo by volume, and not in the good way. Yeah, the, also, the, the, their previous album was like that. I think Blink has this weird dichotomy where everyone remembers them like the funny pop-punk band, but actually most of the records are just like slow relationship songs. And this record turns even heavier in that direction. There's just a lot of, like, slow stuff. I think the reason why the emo is not working for us is because it's Tom DeLonge singing emo. Oh, yeah, no, they are not good emo. They are, uh, they are weird. I I wouldn't even call them emo, though. I I feel this record is sort of halfway through pop punk and slow radio rock. Like, this record is what happens if you mix Green Day with Lifehouse. Ooh, that's cursed. Yeah. Adam, do you know what Lifehouse was? No, what's that? How do we put Lifehouse into words? Um, imagine if Nickelback was whinier and Christian. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. I'm hanging by a moment here with you. Just hanging by a moment. That's right. I could conjure up Lifehouse lyrics in my brain in this year of the Lord. That's almost like being a necromancer. (laughs) Fletch is laughing because we just exposed his secret. Anyhow, story of a lonely guy. Uh, I hate the verses. They're sort of like stock, slow blink, but the chorus is alright. I like the da-da-das. The only problem of the chorus is that Tom DeLonge sings it, and I'm not into that. There's also just like a tiny bit when Travis Barker goes in the chorus, and that bit is good. It's it's not terrible. It's not terrible is the most kind I will be to this track. Yeah, lower tier for the album... I still like the general sound on this album. I think just in terms of audio quality and the kind of sound that they get from their instruments, they're actually like one of... And, you know, you can blame that on the fact that, like, there's a lot of money that went onto this record, but they are one of the best bands that we've covered just in terms of sheer production, sound that they get from their instrument, 
and general vibe. Songwriting-wise, this is not great. Has a good chorus. This is the best that I will give them. You want three things. You can only have two. You have to pick. Well-produced, quickly made Tom DeLonge. I'm sorry, Tom DeLonge is being added no matter what. Whoops. (laughs) I feel like not even Tom DeLonge can ruin the da-da-das for me. It's not one of the best songs on the record, unlike the next one, which I love. Can we talk about the next one? I really like the next song. Yeah, let's talk about the rock show. The good vocals are back. And second worst video on the album. Oh, it's the one where they go around wasting money. They're like, oh, the the studio gave us $10,000 to shoot the video. We're going to waste them all on dumb stuff. Yeah, they, they drive around town and just do stupid shit. And it's questionable how much of it is scripted versus real. So who knows? This song rules. This is a very good single. It's fun. I think Hoppus being the vocalist on this one really helps uplift it. Yeah, this is one of the most iconic Blink-22 songs that they've made, and there's a reason for it. The verses are really fast, but they still have a good build-up to the chorus by being very bare in terms of just sound. The chorus is fantastic, it's super catchy, you just want to sing along with it. Great. Uh, yeah, this song sort of encapsulates pop-punk in, t- in a tight, like, three minutes, and it's really good. You get a Warped Tour reference in it at the beginning of it. The only fault of like, the song, there is not a terrible thing, but, like, the bridge on the song is just, like, a really cheesy boy bandish melodic bridge where it goes really slow for, like, 20 seconds. I mean, they are a boy band. They are a boy band, but uh, come on, you don't need that on this song. But aside from that, the song is so good. Barker does some great drum work on the chorus. The the outro with I'll Never Forget You Now repeated is great. Great guitar sound, which I don't say a lot in Blink songs, because let's be honest, he's sort of like not the greatest guitar player in the world, but, like, actually does a great job here. The song is fantastic. This is, like, iconic pop-punk song, and I'm super into it. This song makes me happy. Speaking of iconic and pop-punk, this whole track was meant as a tribute to the, at the time this was recorded, then-closed venue Soma in San Diego, which was an all-ages club that served no alcohol and got a lot of young bands in the scene their start. Nice. You would have seen Rocket from the Crypt, Unwritten Law, Stone Temple Pilots, Buck 09, Fugazi, Pavement, etc. perform here over the years. And it was originally converted from a slaughterhouse with the basement area being the actual former freezer that got a lot of people the ability to play their first show. Then it moved south of USD 
for a while. And this would have been around the era where Blink started up. And in 99, that location was shut down. So this was kind of a tribute to, yeah, it, it sucks, man. Uh, Hoppus even went on to say in the program notes for the tour, it fucking sucks, man. Soma shut down and the whole thing is just because they decide kids don't need anywhere to go to have fun. Fuck adults. Uh, interestingly enough, within the next year, and I don't know how much some of those comments would have been part of it, Soma would reopen at the position that it is currently still at, taking down a former multiplex and just knocking down all the walls to make it a stage. Nice. So is it still open? Is it still a thing? Yeah, Soma still exists to this day and has not, as of current, shut down during the pandemic. It is being kept alive. Huh. Yep. I mean... It's it's not doing shows, but okay. it's... Yes. The next thing currently scheduled as an upcoming event is April 28th, if pending. Is it Weezer? No. Okay. Uh, Kolohi Kai. He has a ukulele in his photo. Okay. I'm always expecting Weezer to pop out whenever we talk about upcoming live shows. So there are only five shows listed for Soma for the entire year right now. End of April will be Kolohi Kai. Two in May, Chicano Batman and TV Girl. Oh, I like TV Girl. Ketranda in June and LP in September. Nice. That's the only people who are currently scheduling. No Weezer, which I'm uh, approving of. I don't think Weezer's allowed to come back to Soma. I think if they tried to enter a hall that was punk enough as Soma, they would literally burst into flames. <laughs> they would turn into their Fortnite selves and they would burst into flames. No, no, wait, what? Weezer was in Fortnite? Did you not know that was how they debuted their entire new album? I did not know that Weezer was in Fortnite. Yeah, they did a virtual concert in Fortnite. I, you need to tell me everything about Wither and Fortnite. I think it was directly after that awful Africa cover, but before they announced that they were doing a whole album of covers. So this was like Black Album period? The Black Album, and it debuted, yeah. Weezer did a whole virtual concert. I believe they were the first to do so. They broke that cursed ground. Weezer just broke down the walls that allowed things like Christopher Nolan trailers to premiere in Fortnite, because what else are you going to do? Basically, if you make an appearance in Fortnite, you are probably quickly becoming the worst kind of sellout and someone in your life should really be telling you to check yourself. See also, Christopher Die for Movies, Nolan. Speaking of depressing, the next track is Stay Together for the Kids. I think this is a better angst song than anything that they ever wrote on Enema. They tried this song a bunch on Enema, and this is better. Is it good? No. But it is, it is a step up. There is a later interview with DeLong that talks about 
the incident that actually led to this song from his own childhood, and it's probably the most honest the guy has ever been. And then I looked it up, and it's like, oh, this is a 2016 interview. That explains a lot. Yeah, I mean, this song does, like, this is a song about, you know, being a kid and your parent divorcing and stuff and stuff and stuff like that. And it seems to come from a genuine place, because I think both uh, Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLonge are from families where their parents separated where they were young. Yep. I mean, I'm reading that uh, 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 interview right now. It's a thing. It seems to come from a genuine place. The production is good. The writing is not good, but it feels sincere. It's just like a slow song that doesn't really work for me, but... I don't have any reason to actually hate this song. Let's put it this way. Unlike a lot of the writing on Enema, which actively was, like, not good. This is just something that I, I, I don't think I can get into it, really. It's just not your cup of tea? There's still not good songwriters enough to pull this kind of song off. But they, I, I think they sort of moved up the ladder a step and they're not like offensively bad at this kind of stuff anymore. So it's sort of there in the middle. I think this is a very solid track. This is probably my preferred single of the three on this album. Oh no, how can you like this better than The Rock Show? Fletch went to The Rock Shows. He doesn't need a song about it. I can like this better than The Rock Show just because... This does have an actual attempt to step up the songwriting chops. I like the slow, fast, slow, fast dichotomy. The two lyricists working their own styles. I think Delange on the chorus makes the angst and screaming fit better. Okay. I think it's one time his voice really lends. And also... Uh, I saw some reports that there was an original cut of this video that had to be killed just before release because of 9-11. So, yeah, that's why the whole thing feels so choppily edited together. Apparently, the few shots of a wrecking ball in it were originally just a ball tearing through a house. And they decided that they were going to remove destruction and collapsing buildings from the video as much as they could, which is why you suddenly have a lot of B-roll of kids. I don't know. The song is fine. This is not as disastrous as the worst songs on Enema. I, I find this particularly unremarkable, but this record has a good sound. This is my big praise for this record. I, I'm not just chucking this to Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn is a really good producer, but, you know, the, the people who play the things also probably have some say in, like, what they are specifically playing, what effects are they using. 
And overall, everyone did a great job in just molding the sound of this record. The songwriting, eh, I don't love this song, but what you gonna do? Interestingly enough, this is the Mark Hoppus version of First Date in terms of what inspired it. Hmm. It was written when he had a nightmare about he and his wife when he first started dating, like the whole thing just kind of going off the rails and losing him, leaving him behind. That's funny because melodically this one feels similar to First Date to me, which means that I do not like it. It sounds like, melodically it sounds like one of those songs that they have on kids youtube where there's like 20 different versions of it from all different channels and like you just hear it over and over and over again as the child keeps pressing the button to play the next video (laughs) and (laughs) i don't like it i feel like this might be a personal trauma (laughs) it might be (laughs) but you know what i think that's valid of me that's fair it also has the line roller coaster favorite ride, which I feel lacks some words in there, so it sounds like it's the caveman singing it. It it feels a little wheels on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. Reckless abandon. I really like the back half of this album in a way I did not expect. This one is a very energetic... This is their attempt at a summer jam, by all accounts. And it's got a good energy. It's got just the right amount of stupid in the lyrics. Uh, I I laugh at Tom DeLonge's delivery on tried hard to not get caught. He fucked a chick in the parking lot, just thrown out in the middle of a bunch of stories. And the whole thing is reminiscent of a very stupid time in childhood where you would do whatever because you don't got no school tomorrow. What's it matter if you come in at 3 a.m., pass out, as long as your parents were already asleep? So this song continues my frustration with they gave all of the best choruses to Tom DeLonge (laughs) because this chorus is sort of good. It's like very catchy, very sing-alongy. But Tom DeLonge sings it. I don't know that Hoppus's voice would have worked for this. I don't know. I, I, I just, I fight. Tom DeLonge's voice is becoming kryptonite to me. It's just like... Uh... The first half of this album is a little uneven, but I enjoyed it. With one exception, I really like the second half of this album. I feel a lot of this album sounds very samey in that... They play a lot on very similar melodic ideas. I agree. A reason why I focus a lot on saying the sound is really good, it's because melodically and in terms of songwriting, there is not much going on. Like, everyone is playing their instrument very well, but they're not... The songs themselves are not great. In fact, I think... Enema had more memorable songs, even though they were worst songs. 
I remember a lot more of Enema than I remember of this one, which is not a bad thing. Again, this record is like money thrown at a wall. The sound is great. But yeah, I like Crackness Abandon. It has a good chorus. Tom, Tom DeLonge voice is a minus for me. But it sort of still plays in the same melodic space that everything before it has played which sort of is a minus. There is not a lot of variety in how they structure and the kind of spaces that they explore in their songs. So there's one that's way worse about that, but we'll get there. I think you had the same realization I did about one track. Is it the last song? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. It did the thing where it makes it so they're sound in only half your headphones at the beginning, so I don't like it. Am I being petty? Yes. But I have standards. Adam, you are young. You were born when stereo audio already exists. You're not like Fletch. I did actually have monaural headphones at various points in my life. Right? Like, for Fletch, stereo was like a big innovation that he had to take time to adapt to. You were born in a time where stereo music already existed. You cannot be like that, Adam. But it scares me. Like, it's no joke that I grew up with a turntable. So. And in Fletch times, a turntable was just a table that you could turn around. We call like them Lazy, lazy Susan. Susans, Ellie. <laughs> Jeez. Yo. Let's go on to Every Time I Look for You. Never found out why you left him, but this answer begs that question. Too blind to see tomorrow, too broke to beg or borrow. Young and stupid, left wide open, hearts are wasted, lives are broken. One more point of contention, I need some intervention, approach with vain intentions. This is just roller coaster again. <laughs> yeah, this is the one that was featured in American Pie 2 where they showed up. And also, the band's program for the tour has a single sentence written about this where Mark Hoppus says, I honestly have no idea what this one is about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a little confused. This song sure exists. Uh, this appears directly before a Green Day track on the American Pie 2 soundtrack. Actually, wow, this is a hell of a set of tracks. The bridge on this is weird. Am I the only one who thought the bridge sounded like, I don't know, like a Black Gaze song? Like it has, like, it suddenly goes in sort of like this fuzzy, distorted guitar, and you have like this very heavy-hitting, rhythmic drums. It sounds like, you know, the bridge you would have in, like, an Amosurth or in an Alfest song. The solo? Yeah. It's just, like, it's odd. It's interesting. It's odd. No, it's very distinct, and I think that's part of why I gave this an extra star in my notes. Yeah, the rest of the song is just rollercoaster again. The Yeah, the bridge is the good part. The rest of it is a rollercoaster, too. But I had I had fun with it. Let's put it this way. This is an album that at no point was I going, oh, God, how is this track not over? That's pretty rare that we don't have one clunker like that. I mean, I said that during Happy Holidays, you bastards, and that song <laughs> is 40 seconds. <laughs> 
Again, the the Labor Day line kills me every time I think about it. My newfound intolerance of sounds that song very similar to each other uh, makes this album one of those albums. Got it. Yeah, it's understandable. This is a very samey album. Also, newfound intolerance is a great name for a newfound glory cover band. Mm. <laughs> but you have to be like Trump supporting. No, no, no. You 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 make a newfound glory band that's part of the intolerant left. I was yes. I was just gonna say that. So what you're saying is like. How do I merge Chapo Trap House and Newfound Glory into one title? Hopefully you don't. <laughs> I really hope you don't and that we move on to the next song. Virgil Texas, pop punk superstar. Anyhow, give me one good reason. It's the next song. Mom and Dad, they quite don't understand it. All the kids, they laugh as if they planned it. Why do girls want to pierce their nose and walk around in torn pantyhose? Oh yeah, I like the ones who say they listen to the punk rock. I like the kids who fight against how they were brought up. They hate the trends and think it's fucked to care. It's cool when they piss people off with what they wear. Oh yeah. Yeah, this is an Offspring song. No, well... This is an Offspring song. This is this is some full boomer shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they say that this is about, you know, when they were in school, none of their friends, like, liked punk. But they expressed this by hating on every kid ever. Yeah, instead of being an anthem to individuality, it's... Why aren't the rest of you like me? Hate the jocks and preps, the hippie fucking scumbags, heavy metalers with their awful pussy hairbands, counting seconds until we can get away, ditching school almost every single day. Ooh yeah. Yeah, it's not amazing. This is the one track that really craters for me in that back half. Also, this is a line from the program that Tom wrote. Uh... I've been a punker since seventh grade when most of our fans were in kindergarten. Fuckers. It's possibly the most self-aware thing I've ever heard the man say. Also, quote, punk rock to me is about being who you are and hating everyone else. That's a that's a direct quote. I abridge nothing. Yeah, I don't like this shit. This is Full offspring, full boomer brain, it sucks. Luckily, the next track tells him, shut up. Uh, it's a Mark Hoppus track about a bad, toxic relationship. 
It's very angry, incredibly aggro out the gates. They swear on this one a lot because they are adults now. This is definitely the most, the most aggressive song on the record that is not intended to be a stupid joke. Yeah, it's also interesting because I feel that all of the songs are slower than what you have on Enema, but they also have a heavier sound to them. Like, they are definitely trying to be more pop and less punk. They are definitely more getting close to that kind of radio rock. Like, I did not say that they are sort of Green Day meets Lifehouse as a joke. They are getting close to that sort of radio rock. But they're also keeping, like, they're also, like, especially guitar-wise, a lot, especially, like, drum-wise, they are getting heavier on these slow tracks, which is an interesting contrast. And I think it's a sound that does them a lot of favors. I think they work with the sound. This song is pretty good. So, interestingly enough, as you mentioned that, there's a interview with Delon about... Uh, this album came up in some parts of it. And uh, counter to what he was saying in the tour program for the last track, he says, you grow up and realize, fuck, who gives a fuck about punk rock? There are so many great forms of music out there, and you grow beyond wanting to listen to or write something just because your parents will hate it. In how he was talking about how one of the tracks on this album that was in the bonus stuff, we didn't cover it. Uh, was originally done on an acoustic guitar, and they instead, like, made it angrier for the album. So that's... It's sort of interesting that that became his take after punk rock is about hatred and fuck you all. <laughs> yeah, Groot. Character Groot. I get the sense that uh, while he might be a bit of a clown, I would probably have a lot less irritation talking to a modern Tom DeLonge. But it's fair. Shut Up is pretty good. Shut Up is pretty good. It's, again, way more aggressive than I expect, and Hoppus did write that people will try to control you, tell you how you should live, what you should think, how you should act. This is my message to those people. Like Bad Religion says, everybody knows what's best for you. Again, I very much think I like Hoppus. Mark Hoppus has a good voice. Has good vocal melodies. This song is not top tier on the record, but I like it. I don't have many problems with it. Again, great sound. Going heavier on those guitar sounds does them a lot of favor, especially when they are doing a slower song. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just repeating myself at this point. I flipped to the next part of the program, and I saw what you were mentioning about Fugazi. Well, yeah. Well. Shall we talk about the next song, which has apparently inspired by Fugazi? Let's talk about Please Take Me Home and bring this to a close. Take Me Home is just first date again. Yes, it's first date but inversed, and I hadn't looked at this quote right here, which is why you just heard me do a spit take, and that's a real new bit of context for this song. I'm going to read this. Every boy falls in love every once in a while with a friend of theirs. 
a girlfriend, not a dude friend. Unless, of course, you like dudes, and that's fine too. Anyway, this song is crazy influenced by one of my favorite bands, Fugazi. I think it sounds so cool, it just has a cool groove to it. Next record, we'll leave more songs like this, and, uh, he abbreviates one. Stay together for the kids. These songs are fun to play. Oh yeah, girls take hearts and eat them. Beware, dudes. Yeah, so, 2001, Fugazi releases The Argument, one of the best records in Fugazi discography, like, really, really at a good point of experimenting with different sounds while keeping a basic punk aggressive sound. The Argument, fantastic record. Like, if you don't know what that is right now, pause this podcast and just go listen to a sampling of that. I can't, though. I'm podcasting. And then come back and tell us the similarities between Please Take Me Home and any track on that record. We we jokingly said, this is first date, but inverse. But no, melodically, this is first date again. Yeah, (laughs) which is not a bad thing. It's just like not what I think when someone says that they're inspired by Fugazi. Yeah, uh, nothing about First Date sounded like Fugazi. Let's put it that way. Yes. Oh, yeah, this is what I think when I think about Blink-182, about Fugazi. From now on, I'm just going to think of Fugazi as the uh, First Date slash Please Take Me Home band. No! No! Please don't! Fugazi are great! (laughs) That's my frame of reference. That's all I've got. Oh, Adam has learned how to hurt us. (laughs) (laughs) Time to abuse this. Like, they're one of the best punk band ever who started after a couple of really straightforward punk records, really hard-hitting. They started doing really interesting post-hardcore stuff and experimenting a lot in their music. None of that is in that record, which is not bad. I like this record, but it's not... nothing to do with Fugazi. Noted. I have depression now. (laughs) When you fucked Grandpa, did he tell you that he loved you? Did he hold you till the sun did rise? And did he look into your eyes and ask you to fillet him and stick a finger or two in his ass? He seems like a total asshole. Grandpa is a total With that, we're uh, we're done with Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Any thoughts on the album as a whole? That's fine. I think it's... um. It's weird. It's a sidestep from Animal of the State. I think just in terms of the songs, the songs in terms of writing a song, not in terms of lyrics, just in terms of song, Animal of the State had a better song. Everything else is better in this record. I think I'll give you that. I think the only fault I can give this record, and it is a big fault to be fair for me, because pop punk is a very song-based genre, is that the songs are a bit samey, they sort of play in the same space, they're not particularly adventurous, they are actually sort of leaning into that radio rock sound a bit, and I'm not super into that, but 
it sounds excellent. Like this record is excellent in every other way. I still think for me it's like a three out of five, but it's a good record. Enema was also a three out of five. I think this record is it's it's difficult to say on the same level, but it's good for different reasons that I liked Enema. Enema had some really really catchy songs. This has rock song on it, uh, rock show on it, which is fantastic. But everything else is a bit samey. But there is a lot of great work on this record. And yeah, I am curious to see what they do next because the next record is interesting because the next record is when they go a lot more personal and even like slower and they sort of like, they call that their emo phase, even though, you know, emo means nothing when we talk about this stuff. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about to re-experience the next record, but this one is fine. This one is better than I remember it. I remember this record because I actually listened to this record a while ago and I remember this record being not that good aside from Rock Show. But on a listen, there's a lot of good stuff on this one. There's a lot of good stuff. It's just like the song don't hit as hard as some of the anima songs. Okay, but Ellie, you know that the next time we hear from this band, it's not going to be as Blink, right? Oh, is Angela Norwaves before this? Boxcar Racer. Oh, no. Yeah, the next thing we're going to hear from Blink is not their next album, Blink-182. It's Boxcar Racer, because they were almost on the verge of breaking up. This is an album that I had forgotten existed. It got airplay around here, because again, Blink was a giant local band. And yeah. Boxcar Racer sort of morphs into Angels and Airwaves in time, but that's... Oh god, he's been tweeting about... Jesus Christ, he's been tweeting about Boxcar Racer in the past month. Oh no. Yikes. Because it's the 20th anniversary of the band in 2021. But what are your final thoughts on this record, Fletch? I think Blink is greatly improving as a band, and that's not a sentence I expected to say. I had a very good time with this album. I think that individually, most of the songs were okay. Some of them were good. Did like Rock Show. But putting them all together into one album was not a move that I would have made. <laughs> that is fair. It, it, it is very samey. That's my issue too with this one. Mm-hmm. The Rock Show is great, though. <laughs> yeah. What is next, Fletch? Yo! Next week is Stay What You Are by American Rock Band Saves the Day, and I am very interested in seeing where this is going, because this album has been described as pop-punk and post-hardcore. So, this is going to be an interesting combo. Uh, apparently, shortly after the record we're about to cover... They appeared on the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson and toured with Thursday, so I'm already intrigued. I do. And I like that one of their music videos is described as being similar to Requiem for a Dream. Same song, different chorus. This was the episode. You can find us on our website, the website that Fletch would very much like if Apple and Google Play would remove from the stores. 
But you can still access our website <laughs> at getoutofthistown.com. I will never hear the end of this. <laughs> okay. Okay. You can mail us at getoutofthistownpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to do that. Like, even if you don't have anything to say, take it like this. I'm a very lonely person, and if you email us and if you give us something that we can reply to on air, we will feel like we we have, you know, friends. We'll go from emo to post-hardcore. You can also follow us and at us on Twitter at G-G-O-O-T-T podcast. Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, we're everywhere. You can read and review us on iTunes and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next up, we said save the day. Do you have anything to plug, Fletch? You can find all of my works and projects at hellscaper.com. I just renewed it for the year. Do you have anything to plug, Adam? Nope. I am unperceivable. You can find me on ACC The Moon. We do not have a Patreon, but if you'd like to support us, then just know that the bitch you know as Sparkle is back and looking for help. I don't know what that's a reference to, but I like it. Good night, everyone. Goodbye. Good night, everyone. Not like I've got the time to stick around. I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket and get out of this town. What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down. Let's terrify. Fuck Blink! The CIA is the real punks! Story of a lonely guy. <laughs> so he's sort of there in the middle. God, I wish I was listening to the middle. Just take some time In the middle of the ride Everything We're close, two weeks away Oh my god, really? Oh, I thought that was next week Oh. Nope, next week is Uh, say, Stay What You Are by Save the Day